Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. things that I do, I've talked in the last previous weeks about some of the things that I love about being a pastor, some of the aspects of, you know, conducting marriages and doing baptisms and baby dedications, but one of the hardest things I do is counseling parents of people whose children are wayward. I have some expert knowledge on this because I myself was a wayward child for some time, particularly in the area of drug addiction. I have parents coming to me and saying, well, we knew that you were an addict, we knew this happened to you in your life, and God has overcome this in you, and so what do I need to do with my kids? And they sit in tears and tell me everything that reminds me of what my parents and loved ones did towards me when I was out there seeking to find my own best way. I hear about the ways that they love their kids despite thick and thin, no matter what, they go out and reach out and help and try to bring them back. And again and again and again, that love and those overtures of love are not returned. They're unrequited. Now, maybe you've been in a situation where you have a loved one who's out and not returned. They've gone their own way and they've spurned your overtures of peace. They've asked you to leave them alone. Maybe you were someone who's out there and at one time rejected the love of another. Think of the yearning that you have for your loved one as they were out there. While they were on their own way, not walking according to God's will, but according to their own, separated from you in relationship, that pain that you felt in your heart. I had the opportunity one time to sit in a meeting and listen to parents of... um, whose children or loved ones or husbands were in the throes of addiction. And I had the opportunity to sit there myself and to hear the pain that I had caused when I was out there. I probably learned more in that one-hour time with those suffering parents and loved ones about myself and my own recovery than I have over the years and years that I've been clean. If we can hear the yearning in the voice of a parent or loved one for their child who's gone wayward, imagine what God's heart must be. How God feels, and yet he continues to love us. We're so self-centered and blinded by our own sin that we can't see his overtures of love. And we don't realize his faithfulness towards us in the face of our total lack of any merit on our own part. But God... God loves us even in our waywardness and our rebellion. I mean, this underscores the nature of God's love and what it means to be loved by God. God's love, first and foremost, is covenantal. That means that God has made a promise grounded in his very character that he will always love his children. 
Understanding the full scope of this will guard us against a few grave misunderstandings. It certainly did in my own life. I think at one time I would say, well, I'm not that bad. So any love that God gives me either must not be that valuable because I'm not that bad, or I must be doing something to earn it. Or perhaps you're saying to yourself, I've gone too far for God to love me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the choices that I've made, the life that I've led. I assure you, I likely do know that. (laughs) But I'm too far gone. And in shame, we say that God can no longer love us. Or we look at our life and we say, all of these circumstances are going on and I'm being disciplined and this is evidence that God does not love me. After all, if God loved me, he wouldn't allow these bad things to happen. But we'll see in today's text that that is a misunderstanding of who God is as our loving and compassionate Father. So today we're in the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. We're in chapter 11. And as we read through, you need to understand some of the backstory of this book because it lends some major context to what we're about to read. The book of Hosea was written by the prophet Hosea, known as the deathbed prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, so like the 8th century BC, right before the northern kingdom was invaded and taken by the nation of Assyria. Hosea was commanded by God to marry a woman of, we'll say, ill repute, a woman who was most certainly going to cheat on him again and again with other men. She had a beautiful name. She must have been a beautiful woman. Her name was Gomer. Okay. He calls Hosea to marry Gomer, and he does. And Gomer and Hosea have children. And again and again, she steps out on him. And Hosea comes to God and says, why? And God says, because this is what the nation of Israel does to me. He uses the life of Hosea, specifically the marriage and unfaithfulness of his wife, to be a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. And so as we read, we will see God's heart for his bride, his child, his people. You see, the thing is, is at the time, the northern kingdom had amazing prosperity. They had big houses. They had nice coaches. They had wonderful tunics that were made from the finest designers in northern Israel. They had vacation homes up in the northern states. They had everything that they thought they wanted. And they thought they had done it all for themselves. But God knew better because Assyria was on the way. The imagery God uses here to express his heart should not be taken for granted. As we read this passage, I want you to really embrace the fact that God has expressed himself through these words for a reason. I say this because we can read God's word and sometimes say, well, he, he's speaking like a person, so he, but he's not really that way. He's really this way instead. But God has chosen to reveal his heart through this language. So let's dive into this text. Hosea chapter 11. If Bibles are in the pew, if you brought your Bible open there, otherwise the text will be on the screen. You can follow along. As we dive into the text, it's my prayer that our hearts are transformed by three very important lessons. The first is that like a good father, God loves his children even when they rebel. God loves his children even when They rebel. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Look at that language. As a child, I loved him. I called my son. God is speaking to the nation of Israel in familial terms. 
my son. Interestingly, this is the same verse that's used in the New Testament about calling Jesus out of Egypt after he fled from Herod. This tender, familial language. And it sets up a beautiful and tragic picture of a relationship between a father and a rebellious son, a parent and a rebellious child. He says, out of Egypt, he's referring to the Exodus. Back in the book of Exodus, we see that Israel was taken into slavery by the nation of Egypt. And after 400 years, they were being oppressed worse and worse and worse. And finally, they called out to God, and God came in power to the nation of Egypt and through plagues pulled Israel out to serve him and only him in a land that he would give them, a land that they did nothing to earn. And in response, being pulled out completely by God's grace. God didn't have to do anything. He brings them into the desert and makes a promise to them. That's Mount Sinai. He says, I promise that I will love you forever, period. This is what I want you to do in response. And he gives them the law. He says, this is my will for you as my people. This is how I want you to live. He does this out of his grace and love for his children. He takes them out of Egypt. He puts them into the promised land. And we move on to verse 2. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. You see, as God was about to bring them into the promised land, he warned them. He says, I'm going to bring you into this. This is going to be awesome. You're going to live in homes you didn't build. You are going to reap crops you did not plant. The crops are going to be ginormous. Everyone's going to be married. Everyone's going to have kids. There's going to be peace in the country. No fighting ever. If you simply follow what I told you in the covenant that I made with you at Mount Sinai. Yet the more they were called, the more they went away. They were wedded to their idolatry, their worship of something other than the one true God. It says they sacrificed to the Baals. Baals were the gods of the Canaanites. Those were the gods of the people of the land in which they began to inhabit. They were the objects of worship of that land. Now we can read this and we can say, well, we're not sacrificing to Baals here in Elmhurst in the western suburbs, are we? Maybe we don't call it that. But we have no shortage of idols. There are things in this world and in this culture, in this place, that we place on the highest of pedestals in our life. And we do everything we can to serve them. I mean, consider some of these. Our careers, our income, our money, the vehicles we drive. And it's subtle, too. These are not little things. How about our kids? Our kids. I was watching a show on Netflix. I'd encourage all of you. I think it's a great show. It's called uh, The Extraordinary Attorney Woo. It's in Korean, but you can have English subtitles. And you can dub it into English, but it's not good. You need to hear what they're actually saying. It's a beautiful, delightful story about a woman with autism who becomes a lawyer in South Korea. It's awesome. I'd encourage you all to watch it. But there's a scene where she's defending a man who has a child who has done something terrible. And he has the ability to let that child off, but in doing so, it's going to impute the character of his other child. 
So what does he do? And at first, he's going to throw the one kid under the bus to save the other kid, this and that. In the end, though, he says a statement that was so profound to me. He says, you know, when you get to be my age, my kids, our kids, tend to be our resume for life. We look at our children as if they are a reflection of everything that we've done right. And we know so often is the case that that is simply not true. After all, our kids have their own agency, their own free will, their own desires, their own character, and they choose to go the way that they're going to go. They're on their own path with the Lord. But we idolize our kids. We idolize their school. How many different places can we have them be on every given week because we need to have the highest chance that they're going to get a scholarship to the best school so that they can go and get the best job with the best house and then impute all of that onto their kids and then we got to do the whole thing again. So it's just more and more and more. The idols that we serve. It says that they burnt incense to images. The second commandment says that you shall make no graven images. You shall not serve any object that looks like me, for I am an invisible God. The problem is, is we will always get the image wrong. And it will never truly reflect who God is. It becomes a God of our own making. And we serve that God. And the father of lies motivates us to do it. It says the more they were called, the faster they ran. Lainey and I got a, a new dog. Well, you know, we've talked about her. I was going to bring her here, but she's crazy. She's, you don't want her here. She's gonna, she'd pee on the rug, and she'd run all over the place. But she's getting better. And she's getting bigger, so she better be getting better. But her name's Hetty. Hetty is a half poodle, half Airedale. And Hetty loves, she's a terrier, so she loves to chase animals. So you should just see her. It's like horses in like this stall when they get to be released. There's a squirrel outside. I'm about to open the door. She's every muscle fiber is twitching. She's ready. She hasn't gotten away yet, but it's been really close. It's been really close. But she'll sometimes shoot out the front door. She has one thing on her mind, squirrels. She knows they're there. And so I go chasing after her because she won't come back to me when I call. In fact, the more I call, the more she runs. Why? Because she knows when I catch her, I'm going to drag her by her collar back to the house, and put her in her crate. Fun's over. She doesn't want to do that. The other possibility is she thinks I'm simply playing around, that we're playing a game. Man, do we do that. We do that. God calls us into his kingdom. We either run because we're too busy thinking it's all a game or it's going to end our fun. And we don't want to come home. The more they are called, the more we are called sometimes, the faster we run. Sometimes it's just out of simple rebellion. I don't want to. I don't want to. Verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Listen to that beautiful language. That's, that's your God. That's your God's heart and attitude towards you, even in your rebellion. That's how much God loves you. Oh, I've been living a terrible life. I've not been focusing on God. I've been doing other things. God, he, he'll be standing waiting for me to come home, but he's not in any way going to take any type of initiative. That is not the heart of our Father. He's always calling and always ready to pick us up. Look at this toddler imagery. Tod uppy, uppy. It says it was God who gave loving guidance and care to his people. 
Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom. It's one of the tribes from the northern kingdom. So when you read that, you can read the same, it's the same people that he's talking to. See, Ephraim moved in to the promised land and thought that they had arrived, thought that they had done everything that they needed in order to get everything that they were getting. It was their strength. It was their smarts. It was their wealth. They'd even take credit for the rain if they could to say it was them who made their crops grow so big. Yet it was God. They said, look what I've done. And God says, that wasn't you. That was me. We all think everything we have is from us. But in the end, everything we have is from God. There is nothing good that you have that has come from you. That's a tremendous truth. I think about that in my own life. You know, some of the things that God has overcome in my life that we talked about in the beginning was my recovery. I was a drug addict. God overcame that in me. But it's, even, it's subtle for me to say, you know what? I did this. I did some of these things. I've worked for this and look where I've become. And no sooner do I get that, God reminds me that you didn't do this. That I did this because I love you. We tend to believe that the success of our careers, the money in our bank accounts, the success of our children reflect our ability and no one else's. Yet it says that God is the one who led us with cords of human kindness as a father who bends down and holds the hand of a toddler. I think we take credit because to take credit or to give credit to God is to admit that we are truly weak and dependent. And that's a terribly scary place to be. It forces us to eliminate the illusion of control in our lives. After all, we think we can stave off bad things. I mean, there is cause and effect. If I do this, this is going to happen. What we end up doing is learning to manage outcomes. And we live our life as if we're always seeking to avoid the bad. And so then we begin to take credit and say it was us. Not to mention our hearts naturally are tuned against this idea. We focus on ourselves. There's a phrase in here, these cords of human kindness, that really was just, it stuck out to me. It says, it was I who led you with cords of human kindness. You know, it made me think about in my life. There were people in my life when I got out who were tremendously impactful. I say when I got out, when I got out of prison. Tremendously impactful in my life. Walking with me and showing me the path as I went. And it's easy for me to say, man, that person was so amazing. Thank you. For that I, I want to be like that person. But this text says that it was God. It was God leading me through that person's love to me. In our lives, when we interact with someone who enriches our lives and loves us, and we know it, do you know that that's God showing his love for you? Yesterday, we had a memorial service. We talked about how special this person was, and we celebrated their life. And the takeaway that I got from it was that God is just so good. That God blessed us to have known this person in their life. And that God showed his love and goodness to us through them. How many people in your life are like that? Are you one of those people? who seek to love others the way God loves you and so reflect that to the people around you? Parents, do you love your children like this? 
Do you love with this compassion and complete abandon, even in the face of rebellion? Does, think about this, be honest. Does the goodness and compassion and acceptance you show your kids depend on their performance? I hate that I admit that it does in me. Too often. You get a bad grade. You yell at your kid. What do they interpret it as? Oh, it's based on my performance. I remember being kids and getting yelled at for something or spanked or whatever, and then one of us, one of us would say something like with tears, you don't love me anymore. We do this as adults. We do this as adults. Why would we think it would be different for our kids? Young people, does it feel like your parents' love is conditional, and if you do or say or be something bad, they won't love you anymore? All of us, whether you're a parent or a kid or whatever, it should be our aim in life to love others like Jesus loved them unconditionally. He loved them for who God made them to be, saw the image of God in them, and loved them despite everything else. You know, Jesus walked along with some pretty messed up people. (laughs) I would have been the 13th apostle, I think. I would have been the really messed up one. Judas would have said, well, at least I'm not him. This is fueled by adults. Adults, this is fueled by our own worship of idols. We strive after to serve those gods so much. And then we force our kids to follow in our footsteps. The second lesson we need to get into our hearts is that like a father, God disciplines his children's rebellion in love. Stated another way, because God loves us so much, he disciplines us in our rebellion. He doesn't just leave us be. Verse 5, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? God asks a question in a way that assumes the answer is yes. Yes, they are going to return to Egypt. Yes, Assyria is going to rule over them. Why? Because they refuse to repent. They refuse to forego the worship of everything other than the one true God. This is part of the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. In the book Deuteronomy, in chapter 28, it says God promises blessing for adherence to his covenant with them. He says if you do these things, you're going to have blessing in your life. If you don't, you can expect discipline. Invaders will come in. Your crops will shrivel up. You'll have no rain. You'll have no babies. Life will not be good. I want to bless you. This is the road to blessing. If they disobeyed and followed after other gods, they should expect discipline. And here it was. Assyria was coming. You know, we struggle to repent. I can't hate on them. You know, I read about the Israelites, and then it's like, man, that's me. I can't hate, because we all struggle to repent. Sometimes we'd prefer to go back to Egypt, the land of our slavery, the place that God saved us from. You know what your Egypt is. Each of you has something different. Maybe some of you are there right now. You would prefer to go or stay in Egypt in your slavery than you would to look to God, to trust in Him, and to receive the love that He so badly wants you to receive. The one who's given us every good thing we have and waits like a loving father for our return. 
Not only that, will they refuse to repent, and so Assyria comes. Listen to this, verse 6. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. God is saying that when these invaders come in, the objects of your worship will be eliminated. God's discipline is intended to eliminate the need for our discipline. It's not willy-nilly. God doesn't punish us. This is an important piece we need to understand. We can sometimes think, well, I've been bad. I've done bad things in my life. Something is happening, and so God is punishing me. But punishment is this idea of sort of arbitrary or willy-nilly infliction of pain on somebody. Discipline's different. Discipline is coming from a place, a desire to love somebody and move them, nurture them into a different path. God's discipline for us is not random. It has a purpose and it intends for us to repent and turn back to him. When I was in the Navy, uh, I got to the rank where I could start telling people what to do and I assumed that rank with gusto. I said, finally, someone says something snarky to me, I have the power. And so I did. Someone said something I didn't like, swabbed the deck. I was in the Navy. Swabbed the deck. Someone showed up late for work, scrubbed the walls, bulkheads. Do this. Do that. I was a hard taskmaster. Finally, one day, my boss called me in, and he said, listen, I know you're like, you're, you're, it's good that you're wanting to be different. It's good. You're engaging. But you have to understand is that what you're asking them to do must align with the deficit in their behavior. They can't show up late, and then you decide to have them scrub everything in sight. They show up late, they stay late, and guess who stays with them? Oh. (laughs) Suddenly, my desire for discipline had gone out the window. God does not discipline us like I wanted to discipline my guys. God disciplines us with a razor-sharp focus in our life. He wants to disrupt or take away that which is distracting us from him. Parents, where is your discipline coming from? Is it punishment for either inconvenience? (laughs) I remember we had a youth leader here one time who said he had one rule to the kids. Kids, I got one rule. Don't inconvenience me. Don't inconvenience me. It's a great rule, actually, but. Do we discipline or punish our kids out of inconvenience? They've done something that's irritated us, and now we have to take time to address it. Or is it a, did they embarrass us? There's another one. You did, I got a call, you're going to get it. Why? And is our discipline focusing on their deficit? Does your discipline intend to restore relationship? This is what God's intent was. God didn't just send invaders to come punish the Israelites because he wanted to punish them. He was calling them back to himself. And in our life, when we experience discipline from God, bad circumstances, bad feelings, something's going on in our life, there's something happening, we need to look and say, what is God trying to teach me here? How is God trying to restore me back to loving relationship with him? Young people, I want you to know something. There is no doubt that your parents have punished you for the wrong reasons. No doubt. I know because I'm a parent and I punished my kid for the wrong reasons. I've been a kid, believe it or not, and I was punished for the wrong reasons. No one gets through this life unscathed in the parent-child relationship. Nobody. 
No matter how hard we try to insulate our kids from all of the bad things that happen in this world and place them on this insulated pedestal in an insulated suburb, in an insulated place, insulated school, insulated everything, we cannot protect our kids from the stuff that's going to happen in the world. Why? Because we are the problem. Our hearts are broken. Something does not work right. The Bible calls that sin. So on behalf of your parents, I apologize. They're just trying to shape and mold you. And I'll apologize for when they misdiscipline you again in the future because it's going to happen again. God is using, just like we talked about the cords of human kindness, young people, God is using your parents to love you. Do you know that? That when you do something wrong and your mom and dad discipline you, it is God showing his love for you. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it is. He doesn't want you to stay the way you are. He wants you to be the person he created you to be. And he's placed you as a charge of your parents. He loves you. Verse 7. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me the Most High God, or God Most High, but I will by no means exalt them. The crazy thing about all of this, northern kingdom, worshiping other gods, serving the bells, burning incense, all the while they say, God is God. They even acknowledge by their mouth that God exists and that he's the Most High God. This should be a wake-up call for us, man, for real. I mean, we live our lives one way, and then we come in on Sunday, live another, or we try to do the best that we can. Of course, that we, we do it in our own strength, and then we do other things we shouldn't. And the whole time, we're proclaiming that we're Christians. The other day, I wore a Grace Bible Church shirt. And I always, before I go in my drawer and I pull out a shirt and it says Grace on it, I'm like, man, am I ready to up my behavioral game today? Do I really want to put this shirt on? I put it on. I put it on. So I went into McDonald's, and there was these young kids. They had to have been in, they were supposed to be in school, I'm guessing. Three boys. Being absolutely obnoxious in the McDonald's. I was that kid, so I totally get it. Absolutely obnoxious. But I wanted so bad to say something. And I sat there with this little scowl on my look, thinking, oh, the next generation, you know, this and that. The whole while, I got this Grace Bible shirt, shirt on, and I was just about to go up and say something, you know, like all thug-like, you know, and like, because I bring out, like, I was going to backslide for a minute on these kids in McDonald's, and I decided not to. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to eat, and I'm going to get out. And as I'm walking out, I remembered I was wearing the Grace Bible shirt. We should be living our lives as children of God with the word Christian across our foreheads. When you go out into the world and you're interacting with your children, with your workplace, with the people on the street, do you realize that you should have Christian across your forehead? Because we're all a reflection of God's family. And what we do reflects on their image of who God is. So we can say that we follow the Lord. We can say that we're Bible-believing, Jesus-trusting Christians, born again, the whole rip. But if we do not act like it, we can expect discipline from our loving Father. Claiming to follow Christ does not equate to a maturing and growing relationship with him or others. 
We can say we're a Christian and be absolutely stagnant in our walk with him. Our walk with the Lord is like being on those you know, flat escalators at O'Hare Airport, the one that make me feel so guilty because you've got those fit people who are walking next to me looking over in disdain while I'm just sitting there waiting, not doing anything. It's like our Christian walk. If we stop, because we're going the other direction, you've got to remember, the escalator is wanting to bring us towards our negative self, towards our sinful heart. So we're constantly going against the flow. If we stop, we go back. It's been said the only fish that goes with the flow is the dead one. We have a constant struggle to walk with the Lord, to grow and mature in Him and His strength. And it's out of that relationship that we proclaim who we are and who He is. The danger of this is thinking that claiming to be a Christ follower will bring us a smooth life. I'm sure that's what the Ephraimites thought. We're Jews. Nothing bad's going to happen to us with Assyria knocking on the door. I mean, look how far we've come. We've built these houses. We've planted these crops. Look at the size of our produce. It's amazing. We did this. And yet they were ready to be invaded. We like to mix our faith with our sinful desires and expect God to exalt us in our life. You know, I, I just lost a pair of sunglasses. I blame Lainey, though, because we went into a restaurant and I said, hey, don't let me forget my sunglasses. And she forgot to tell me to get my sunglasses. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. When I went and bought the sunglasses, they were Ray-Bans. I thought, I'm getting Ray-Bans. And I, I was not. I mean, I'm like a Walgreens sunglass guy. That's like what I normally do. But I'm getting Ray-Bans because I'm the lead pastor now. <laughs> After all, I have an image to uphold. There are people on the internet nipping at my heels. I need to do better. So I'm getting Ray-Bans. So I looked, and the first thing I looked at was that lens. Oh, there it is, Ray-Ban right there on that lens. Everyone who sees me is going to say, that's a cool pastor. Because <laughs> he's got the stamp. And I justified it to myself with, at least I'm not doing heroin. <laughs> I pay my bills on time. I've not gotten in trouble with the law. I've not had to go to court. No one is mad at me at this moment. Church is going pretty well. I deserve these Ray-Bans, even though in my heart, God was saying, just go to Walgreens, bro. They're not going to make you any better than you think you are. Now that I told myself I can never get another pair of Ray-Bans in this church. Because <laughs> you'll know. But we like to mix our faith. We want to live one way and say another. Jesus talked about it in the Pharisees and said that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not enough to say we're a Christian. We have to live like it. Mother Teresa said, preach the gospel to every man and when necessary, use words. It's a powerful statement. We live like Christ so we can be like Christ and others will see Christ in us. Not just who we say we are. Finally, God loves us in our rebellion. He disciplines us out of his love. And the final lesson from this passage is that like a father, God's discipline is tempered by his compassion. Tempered by his compassion. What does that mean, tempered? 
I like to cook. And I often will cook dishes like, uh, for instance, carbonara, Italian food. Carbonara. It has a sauce that's made out of egg yolks. But if you make this pasta and you just dump eggs in, what are you going to get? Cold eggs, hot pasta, scrambled eggs. You're going to get scramby eggs. But you don't want scramby eggs in your pasta. You want a nice, smooth, rich sauce on it. So what you do is, as you're cooking your pasta, you take some of the hot water. And you carefully whip it into the eggs, heating the temperature of the eggs up so that when you add them to the pasta, they don't scramble. You do that with care and compassion because you don't want to ruin your dinner. You're trying to have Italian food, not breakfast. God tempers his discipline for us with his compassion. If he were to throw us or throw hot water directly upon us and everything it's got, we're scrambled, we're done but he does it carefully and controlled and out of love and out of perfect wisdom. He knows exactly what we need. He tempers it. Verse 8, he says, so there's this turning point. God is saying, I love them. They've departed from me. They're going to go back to their uh, old ways. I'm going to send in. And then he talks about them being disciplined. He goes, "But, but how can I do this? How can I let them have the full measure of what they deserve? I can't. So in verse 8, he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Again, northern kingdom. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboyim? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. For those of you who don't know, Adma and Zeboyim, these are the two lesser-known towns that were associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, there were little towns in the same area that were destroyed as well. Zeboyim and Adma were one of them, were two of them. So he's saying, how can I pour out all of my wrath upon my people whom I love, my children, who I've coddled and who have toddled with me, who I've led with cords of human kindness? I can't. I can't. So he promises to relent. We see this turn in God's heart. Now, did God really change his mind? It's an interesting conversation. In one sense, God did change his mind. Why? Because he said, I changed my mind. We should just take God at his word. He says, I changed my mind. And from our perspective, his compassion is aroused when the discipline that we're receiving relents. But it's also important to know, and it's important to hold this intention, that God being God does not change. That God being God knows the end from the beginning. And so nothing is really different for him. He sees all of our time in one indivisible moment. For us, that's important because we need to know that God knew exactly what would happen. As his children, he is leading us. He's guiding us, giving us exactly what we need to achieve a purpose in the end that is conformity to his son Jesus. This life he walks us through to change us and shape us into who it is that he wanted us to be from the very beginning, who he intends us to be in the end. Verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. God's saying that he is not a man and it relates to his cessation of anger. I don't know about you, but we stay mad. Nothing like a good resentment to hold on to. I'm talking years. Let's hold on to this one because I have a right to be angry. Could you imagine if God held on to his anger every time he had a right to be angry with us, what that would be for us? It'd be, we'd be done. We'd be done. 
But God is saying, I am not like that. I'm not like a man who would hold a resentment forever. I am God and I will relent. Parents, there's a lesson here for us. It can be extraordinarily difficult of a lesson. But that when discipline is over, we let go of a resentment. That when we discipline our kids for doing something and they end up doing it again or something different on the heels of that, that we do not pile our discipline on in relation to what had just happened. God doesn't do this. Now, they've done a thousand things wrong before this. God, after forgiving all of those, and now this doesn't say, oh yeah, let's rehash the past. God allows the discipline to work and he relents and he forgets. Until the next time, we choose to go our own way and he disciplines us again in love. There's a purpose to the discipline. God says they, in verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. This is God. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. I get this sense of like, you know, roaring lion. I think a lion witch in the wardrobe, Narnia thing. I think of Aslan just roaring and all of his children coming home, obeying his command without failure. This is God's intent for us. God's walk in our lives is compassion and discipline for us is to bring us to a place that we are more like him, a place that he knows he's seeking to reach us. He has a goal in mind, and he's achieving that in our very lives. This is a statement of fact, not wishful thinking. It says they will follow the Lord. It's a beautiful reminder that when we go off the rails, God does not give up on us, that he loves us, and in his discipline, he loves us. And it'll accomplish its purpose. He will settle us in our homes, just like he settled the Ephraimites when they returned from Assyria. The purpose of God's discipline is ultimately peace and safety in his holy presence. For us, that means, and because of Christ, God promises to bring us into confirmation with Jesus Christ. Confirmation. Not, con- not like to confirm something, but to conform like show dogs, right? Show dogs have a certain standard to which they're measured. When a judge, you ever watch like the Westminster Kennel Club thing or whatever, and, and the judge just seems so aloof, like he's barely looking at the dog or she's just looking the other way. She touches the dog in a few spots. She goes over all these dogs, lines them all up, and then she, one, two, three, four. She's not saying that those are the best dogs of all the dogs there. What she's saying is, is the number one dog most closely matches that species' perfect standard. Number two, second best, three, and so on. The purpose of our lives, particularly discipline in our life, is to be formed, conformed, into the image of the perfect person, Jesus. And when we're struggling, when we're being disciplined, when we're going our own way and God's giving us those feelings of, you're going wrong, you're going wrong, things are going bad, we're getting consequences for our actions, that is God's unfailing love toward his children to get us to the end. Perfect confirmation with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, just like Adam from the garden, We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. One day we will look like Christ. Nothing God does in our life is arbitrary. It all serves a purpose. In Romans, Paul says, this is 
such an important passage for me. It reminds me that it's called the golden thread of salvation sometimes. But for those whom he foreknew, when you read foreknew, think of the word loved. Those whom he loved for eternity, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That God called you into his kingdom as a child of God. He will do what he said he's going to do. Conform you into the image of his son. So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. It won't just be Jesus in heaven. <laughs> this could be all of us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's a clear link that if God has foreknown us in love, we will be conformed to his image in heaven one day, regardless of what's going on here in heaven. That is a promise, ladies and gentlemen, that I am basing my life on. Because if I look at the things that I do, the way I mess up, the way my heart wants to go, and assume that this is an indication of where I'm going to be in the end, I might as well give up now. We all might as well give up now. God has promised. You know, God has started to work in you when he opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. When he opened your eyes to the truth that God wants a relationship with us, and because of our sin, there's a separation there. But the punishment for us, that, that what we deserve in that separation is death. But God loves us so much, he does not want that. So he sent a substitute on our behalf to die in our place. That all of the punishment we were supposed to receive as a result of our sin was punished on one who didn't deserve it. And then all of Jesus' perfection was credited to us. And now we walk before the Father as if we are innocent. Think about that. Innocent. Not because of what we've done or will do tomorrow, but because of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago on the cross on our behalf. When we open our eyes and respond in faith and simply say, Lord, I believe. I'm going to walk that way now. I'm going to leave behind and walk towards you in faith. It marks a moment that your eyes have been opened. My eyes were opened 15 years ago in a jail cell. And my life has never been the same. Absolutely transformed. I know it's God because I know who I am really. And I know what I'm capable of doing if I wanted to go my own way. It could only be God. If you're sitting here today and you're understanding this, if you're sensing God's presence in your life, I want you to know that God is calling you. That you are part of an eternal plan that God has known from the beginning to bring you to a place of perfect peace and dwelling forever with Him. You're part of God's plan. So as we're going through this life, as we're dealing with our rebellion and our discipline, let us remember, one, God loves his children even when they rebel. Two, that God disciplines his children. He loves us enough to not let us be. And three, he discipline, his discipline is tempered by his compassion. He loves us. He does not want us to see us destroyed. He wants us in his bosom. He wants to... A couple of weeks ago, I preached about holding, hugging Jesus. Do you remember? Hugging Jesus up here? That's held on to me for a long time. And then yesterday's memorial service, thinking about arriving in heaven and hugging Jesus. Why would I ever want to let go and do something else? 
that can only be evidence that something's broken here. Something's broken here. And God has made a provision for that. He disciplines us, but he does it with compassion. Let us pray. Father, we read these tender words that you have spoken to us through Hosea, and we do get a glimpse of your heart for us. Lord, we fully admit that there are times, most of the time, I don't know, Lord, maybe every time that we're going our own way, where we govern our own lives and we don't look to you moment by moment. And Lord, we confess. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a desire to see you in the discipline that we experience day to day. We pray, Lord, that we're in, when we're in difficult circumstances, when we have painful feelings, when life just doesn't feel right, seems like the joy that was in our heart once is now gone, let us look to see where you're seeking to teach us something. Lord, help us to forego the things that we idolize. And help us, Lord, to turn our eyes and attune our hearts to you and only you, for you are a compassionate God who will receive us with joy and love. All because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.